0: of you who might have been a televangelist maybe back in the 80s, but you, you can, can reach back farther than that. I've, I've been listening to a, a podcast, which I strongly recommend to you, by the way. It's called uh, the Christian History Almanac by 1517.org. Uh, one of the things that, that strikes me as I go through this daily five-minute or so podcast recounting what has happened on that particular day in church history is that, man, there have been a lot of scandals. <laughs> Unbelievable how often we see corruption crop, its, crop up in the church, and and it's ugly pop out. But what strikes me as, as particularly important for us to recognize is that God does not ever ignore that. Every time we see one of these scandals, man, it's Black mark on the church. It? It's an embarrassment. In fact, many are turned away from the faith because they they associate these scandals, these bad behaviors, fake worshipers, impious people who like to look pious. They associate that with Christ or with the church. They don't want anything to do with it. Who can blame them? Know from conversations that many of you here in this room today have fallen into that category. You years to get back to church. In fact, some of you even now are still struggling to let go and embrace the church. God includes this story in the Book of Acts that we'll be looking at in Acts chapter five. That's your hint to start turning. Uh, He includes this story. Help us process this. To remind us that God does not tolerate these things. Nor does he sit idly by. Throughout the history of Christendom, sinful people have done sinful things. That's not really surprising. What do sinners do? Sinners sin it. Well, every time we have a church made up of people... What do we know about people? We're sinners. And because we're sinners, we sin. But when we struggle with processing that, we think sometimes that being a Christian means sin is done. You never have false motives, you're never selfish, you're never prideful, you're never jealous, never, never less than honest. But a simple look in the mirror tells us otherwise. I spent a lot of time talking to you, talking to anybody that I can, about the Reformation, the Great Reformation in the 16th century. Why is that? Because the church at that time, and for centuries before that it had been going this direction, had become completely apostate. That means it had turned away from the teachings of the Word, turned away from true right doctrine, the apostles' teaching, and it had brought in what call strange fire. And during that time, God, not Martin Luther, not John Calvin, God intervened. And he did so through people. And he said, Look, look in my word. In Luther's case, he used a, a lightning strike, a thunderstorm. To cause him to fear death, to be certain he was going to die in that moment. So he made a pledge in his bad theology at a particular time, made a pledge to St. Anne save me and I'll become a monk. He became a monk. And he learned everything that you can learn as a monk and a priest. He did all of the right things, he did them all the right way. And he knew in his heart that he wasn't right, that he was still stained with sin. And he recognized the more he read, the more he learned, the more he recognized that God is holy. He was not. Furthermore, he realized he was never going to be. How could he possibly ever live up to the standard that God had? God seemed like an angry God, a hateful God, a God full of wrath. And every time he'd read these Old Testament stories of God's punishment, he'd see God's wrath did not recognize him as a God to be loved, but only a God to be feared, could not process that. Until he began to read in the New Testament that the same God who demonstrated all of this wrath, wrath against sin, doing mighty deeds to show his anger against sin, is the same God. Gives grace to the broken and humble in his Son Jesus Christ. By grace, unearned favor, we are saved. Not by works. Not by earning the merits of Christ, but rather by faith, by trusting the merits of Christ. When we see that, we recognize, as Paul would to Titus, it's not by of righteousness that we've done. It's only according to His mercy that He saves us. Luther turned the world upside down. Now, he was not the first. There had been reformers throughout the history of the church. There had always been reformers. There were reformers before there was a church back in Israel. That's what the prophets did. They called out the inconsistencies in the spiritual life of God's people. And they ushered in, very often, God's judgment. Sometimes they would bring that judgment immediately. Other times they would herald that judgment and say, repent. God is going to destroy you if you do not. Sometimes people would repent. Other times people would be destroyed. came to a point where everything came to a head with God's people, Israel. He said, look, we've been walking together. I told you that if you will keep my commandments, you'll be my people, I'll be your God. I've kept my end of the bargain. You keep turning away from me. He said, that. I will exile Israel. And he took the ten northern tribes, the ten northern territories of Israel, and he gave them over to the Assyrians, a pagan, wicked people, so that those that remained, the remnant in Judah, the two tribes, the small portion, might learn and see God's mighty hand and turn that they would repent from their wickedness and that through them the world might be saved. But Judah also in their sin. so God sent the Babylonians to carry off the last two tribes. And yet God said to them, as you have heard so many times often misapplied in Jeremiah 29:11, I know the plans I have for you. I'm going to send you off into exile and you will no longer be a nation, but I'm not done. The plans I have for you, Though they involve 70 years of exile in Babylon, being oppressed by a pagan people, being obliterated as a nation on your own, my plans are still for your good, to prosper not to harm but to ultimately bring you the shalom, the prosperity, the harmony of being that I've always promised, the restoration, as it were, of Exile. It was a silence. God didn't send prophets for 400 years until so He sent John the Baptizer to break the silence, to usher in the church age, as it were, to usher in the age of grace, to prepare the way to Christ, the Messiah. And John was, as the Old Testament prophets had been, repent. God's judgment is at hand. He said, repent. The kingdom of God is near. It's coming. And when God's kingdom arrives, when God finishes His work, all that is less than holy will be destroyed. But for now, God offers grace. He offers mercy if you will just turn. Jesus came. John had prepared the path. And the Christ, the Messiah, came. What was his message? The same message. Repent. The kingdom of God is near, even at hand. And Christ, being the fulfillment of all the sacrifices, of all the prophecies, everything that the Old Testament was given to show, he was the fulfillment seek and to save the lost. And so we proclaim this message, good news, God's mercy is being offered, but rest assured that his judgment will come. If you will keep to my commands, if you will hold to my teachings, then you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? Tell me. set you free. Some of you worked on your memory. The truth will set you free. He went so far as to say, a little later on, or just before that actually, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who sets you free? You're hesitant. Say it loudly. Who set you free? There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's just Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else. In the book of Acts, the apostles and those early disciples finally get it. They're consumed now that they have experienced and understood the reality of Christ. They're no longer playing religion. They spent their whole life being religious, most of them, seeking a God that they could not reach because they could not be good enough. They could not be holy enough. Now they've seen and understood the reality of Christ. God made man. God in the flesh. God with us. Living just as we do. Facing every temptation, every fear, every anxiety, and yet never one, giving in to the devil's schemes. Now, my mind can't quite take that in. I have a hard time making it to lunch. Maybe you can identify with me better, better than you can with Christ. Perfection. And yet this perfect one, facing every temptation, yet never sinned. The one who knew no sin, who sinned for us at the cross. So that we, in trusting Him, in receiving this gift that He's paid for, might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news. But the good news starts with the bad news. That our sin separates us from God and we can't earn our way back. We can't fix it. We can't be religious enough. We can't be good enough. We can't be pure enough. We can't be holy enough. The world likes to tell us that we can. Religion likes to tell us that we can. If you'll check these boxes, if you'll do these things, if you'll pray these words in this particular order, if you'll go through these rituals, then God will smile upon you. And you'll be good enough to receive his favor. Intellectual honesty says, if you're just honest enough with yourself to recognize your own but as you know that will never, ever work. And you end up despairing, just like you. So you find that it's by grace that we're saved. And you choose to receive Christ by trusting in Him. The gift is paid for. You just have to unwrap it. They've done that. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit indwells every believer. That's what Peter says. This this gift of the Spirit is for you and your children, your children's children, all who are far off, all who will will believe in Christ, receive the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you don't have Christ. It's all together. That His point is completely that God, Son, the Father, the Son, Spirit, all together belong to the verse and we to Him. Children fully adopted in right standing, all who have received Him, all who have believed in His name, have the same standing, check this out now, the same standing before God that Christ has. Can you, can you, if you're still playing religion, then you're missing out on that. If you think that you're gaining points with God by coming to church on Sunday, you're missing out on that. If you are still living by a checklist of do's and don'ts, then you're missing out on that. And if you think that because you said a Christ involves God's love, His mercy, and His holiness. There's no salvation apart from repentance. I turned from my way to God's way. They've done this. And they received the Spirit. And everything so far in the book of Acts is victory unto victory. It's only awesome. In fact, uh, John Calvin described it as, as Luke's account really... Seeming more like a, a, a gathering of angels than a gathering of men. All we see is awesomeness. Now you know because you know each other. Look around; you know everybody around you, right? If you don't meet them after church. But you know from the people around you and the person wearing your clothes right now that there ain't no angels here. When we gather, we are we're in a human desperately need the Holy Spirit or we can't walk in Christ. It's the Spirit in us that does this. So when we looked last time in Acts chapter 4 we saw Peter and John doing some awesome stuff. Healing, speaking boldly, the Holy Spirit moving through them so that in their persecution as they're arrested they're able to speak more boldly and to count it truly joy Because this arrest, this jailing, gives the opportunity when we preach the gospel. Every persecution becomes a platform. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, and we're going to see what we saw last week, starting with 4, verse 32. It's a bridge. It's the end of last week's story. It's also the beginning of this week's story. And we're going to run right into chapter 5, and we'll read the first many verses there. Hopefully you're all, you all be there. Pull along with me. Acts chapter 4 starting with verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace... At work in them all, but there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means encouragement, we'll see a lot more about him. Joseph sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, some of the money you received from the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. A great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's Colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. Father, as we open your word today, we are looking at a very happy and serious story. Father, on the part of the Lord, I ask now that you guide my words, that you guide on my tongue, that what is spoken today would be what your spirit chooses to say to the church. Father, even as I pray for that which is spoken, I pray for that which is heard, I ask that you would move in each of us here, that each person hearing my voice today, be spirit, in order to have a stone heart turned into a flesh heart, that you would soften any hardened places. Father, in this moment, right now, bring to mind, bring to our consciousness any unconfessed sin in our lives. Make us painfully aware of that which we have not yet dealt with. We want to be clean before you, Father. We cannot approach you without clean hands and a pure heart. So, in this moment right now, Father, I pray that you would humble us. Strip away from us anything, anything. Would focus on self or how others might perceive us. That we would see only Christ. That we would hear only your Spirit speaking through your word. That you would silence any voice that would exalt itself above the knowledge of. As we look at this story, this is the first, the very first church scandal ever. As we said prior to this, it seems more like a gathering of angels than of humans. Their focus is on Christ, and because their focus is on the reality of Christ, this is is all to them. Christ is real, Christ is Lord, Christ has saved us, He is alive. This is their focus. Everything else seems to them small and pale and weak and hollow. So their focus on the reality of Christ has freed them from the pull of lesser In this story, for the first time in the history of the church, we see a record. Now, I don't think for a moment that there was no sin, but now, in this moment, we see a record of these disciples taking their eyes off Christ and dropping their gaze from vertical to horizontal, to seeing the things around them, to seeing how others might view them, to seeing their stuff, their possessions, but it's not just about possessions. As you read through this story, it's easy for us to look at it and say, oh, this is a story about greed. Ananias and Sapphira were greedy. They wanted their stuff, and God is condemning them because they didn't give everything. But that's not what happens Notice Peter doesn't condemn them for not giving the full amount. Notice in the climax of the story, after Ananias has already died, he's already been buried. Think about how it must feel for young men who've gone out and figured, this takes some work, right? They're digging a hole or whatever they're doing to bury him, finding rocks or a tomb. So they bury him, and they come back in three hours later, and they walk in on the same thing. What's the following? What is going on? You can imagine why there would be fear, right? But notice in the climax here, after Ananias has died and been buried, and they come back in, at, at verse 10, I'm, I'm sorry, let me back up to verse 9, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? listen, The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. But what was it that he was condemning? It wasn't the keeping of the money. It was the conspiring to lie. He says to Ananias, you've not lied just to people. You've lied to God. In fact, he makes that really clear. As we're looking at this, our core reality for. That the holiness of God demands integrity in those who represent Him. It took me a long time to come up with this not very clever way of saying it, because all the things that I kept coming up with were either partial, super long, or way too cute. And cute's not helping us. We need to recognize what God is doing here. The holiness of God demands integrity in those who represent them. What does that mean? Does it mean that God demands integrity? Well, yes, He does. But more than that, the character of God, because God is holy, the very reality of His holiness dictates that those who would represent Him, those who would reflect the reality of Christ, must look like Him, must therefore be holy, set apart, and this is a whole life function. Integrity has to do with wholeness. I can't be holy in one part of my life And not in the rest of my life. I can't be holy on Sunday morning and not be holy the rest of the week. I can't be holy when people are looking to do something else where people don't see. The holiness of God, the otherness of God, his demand demand that his people be holy because he is holy repeated so many times in the Old Testament. We see it repeatedly in Leviticus. Peter comes back to that in his letters. Be holy, because I the Lord am holy. This demand means that everything about the people of God must be His. There is no part-time Christian. There's no pathway. You're in or you're out. Now, the reality is all of us are sinners. Ananias and Sapphira didn't die on the spot in the church because they sinned. going to a I'm so Because you were starting to get a little nervous. The reality of it is they were struck down, they were punished. The church was purified and disciplined because of this sin in this moment, in this situation. This is a new age. God is establishing the church. We see it at a variety of points, at turning points in history, where God makes a particular statement. Many of you in this group have been teachers, and I think all of you have been students. And you know, if you're a teacher or a coach or perhaps a boss, when you get a new person, or you start a new move, or you start a new school year, you need to set a tone. Because if things are out of control early, they're only going to get worse. How many of you are parents? If you don't get your kids trained right as toddlers, it's going to bite you in an unpleasant place when they're teenagers, right? And it's going to get much worse when they're adults and they're out of control, Start early when the snowball is small, because once it gets rolling downhill, look out, the damage is big. That's what's happening here, by the way. God is establishing early the priority of purity among his people. The holiness of the church has to go all the way through. Now God knows, he knows that we are but dust, he made us. He knows our shortcomings. He knows our limitations. He knows that we fail, that we fall. Absolutely. That's why Jesus died. That's how He gives us His grace. Because you're good enough, not because you can do better. Because He loves us. So He paid for us. And gives us the resurrection life of Christ with the Holy Spirit walking us. Through us. No, no, it's not about the fact that there was sin. There was already sin. But this particular sin of pretending to do something, this hypocrisy in worship was setting a tone for all of history. It gets handled differently in this situation. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that your hypocrisy is not exposed in church when we show up and the Holy Spirit says, Jesse, I see through you. And announces it to everybody, and then you fall down and die. Because wouldn't that put all of us in jeopardy? Don't be honest. Don't raise your hand. Be honest with yourself. How many of us today... sin we have not repented of, we haven't confessed, with anger, bitterness that we haven't let go of, people that we haven't forgiven, well, they're not sorry. It doesn't matter. Sorry has nothing to do with it. Well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. It doesn't matter. That's got nothing to do with it. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. If we are to forgive as Christ forgave us, it's not contingent. This is the kind of love that we have to have. And we can't approach God while we're holding on to that stuff. We can't approach God with hypocrisy. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Those with clean hands and pure heart. I can strip everything else away. The holiness of God demands integrity in those who represent Him. Let's walk through this scandal and its impact on the church, its impact in the moment. Impact on us. We're going to see uh, five things here: context, corruption, confrontation, consequence, and conclusion. What's the context? Well, we've, we've looked at this. We see it in Acts 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any other possessions of their own. They shared everything they had. The focus is on Christ. Their eyes are on Christ, and they're walking by the Spirit. Their eyes are on Christ, and they're walking by the Spirit. What happens when their eyes are on Christ and they're walking by the Spirit? They're unified. When their eyes are on Christ, rather than on one another or on themselves, then they grow closer and closer together. Imagine, and you might think of this uh, in terms of marriage as as well, as we grow closer to God, if we're on a pyramid together, and God is at the point, the closer we get to Him, the closer we get to each other. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 4. We saw it in Acts 2, at the end of Acts 2. We see it at the end of Acts 4. Their eyes are on Christ. They're walking with the Spirit. They're in one accord. That's not a Honda reference. They're in harmony together. They're thinking alike. Because it doesn't matter who gets the credit. It doesn't matter if somebody else gets more recognition. It doesn't matter if I am comfortable. It doesn't matter if I keep my stuff. What matters is faith expressing itself in love because our our eyes are on Christ. And as the Spirit moves through us, He draws our attention to the needs of others because of of the love of Christ in us. That's the context that this takes place in. It feels a lot like Genesis chapters 1 and 2. When we see this beginning of the church, everything is awesome. Everything is awesome and fantastic and wonderful. Everybody's doing the right things, at least according to the record. That doesn't mean everything is perfect every day. But the record here shows what looks a lot like Eden. They're not taking advantage of each other. They're giving to one another. The opposite of what we see so often. You don't see a record fighting. They're in one accord, one mind, one heart. As they are... Doing this in the middle of this New Testament evil, corruption comes in. How does this corruption come in? Well, we we see what happens with Ananias. Interestingly, at the end of 4, we see the, the, the positive picture of Joseph. He's a Levite, that means he's from the priestly line. And he's not from Jerusalem, he's from Cyprus. Now, perhaps. That means his background is from Cyprus and he's been living here. More likely, it seems, he's come here for the festival uh, and stayed. He got caught up in in the way. He's following Christ and he stayed here with the believers in Jerusalem. In any case, he's from this island off the Greek coast. They call him Barnabas. He'll become a partner of Paul later on in the book. Interesting that Luke chooses to single him out here, likely because of his prominence, because people knew who he was. But Joseph sells a field that he owns and brings the money and puts it at the apostles' feet. Notice, by the way, that this is not everybody giving away everything. From time to time, as appropriate, those who had means, those who had land, those who had houses, rich people, They brought what they had, whether cash, possessions, property, they sell that so that they could take care of people's needs. If they had money to give, they'd give the money. If they didn't have money to give, they'd sell the land, sell the house, the, the, the extra vacation home, whatever it is, so that they could take care of everybody's needs. Why? Because they were so united in their minds, so focused on Christ, it's not that they didn't have possessions. But they didn't hold them tightly. They held them loosely. They began to recognize, as they had never seen before, that what I have is not mine, it's God's. He gives it to me as a tool to do His work. So they would bring it, notice they don't take it to Rome, (laughs) they don't give it to Caesar, they take it to the apostles. So here, take care of the needs. Take care of anybody who's got got needs that if they, if they need a place to stay or they need food, here it is. Corruption comes in in verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, of chapter 5, letters, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Luke is making a deliberate parallel, or more specifically a contrast here, between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest put it at the apostles' feet. So far, so good. That in itself, that's a good thing. See, these are wealthy people, to some extent. They have means. Maybe they're not wealthy, wealthy, but they've got stuff. And as they're giving this away, they're giving more than other people. Even by giving part, they're giving more than is required. That seems generous. The problem is, and this is what we'll see in just a moment, their thought's not right. They're thinking about people seeing them, so they want to portray this as something different. They want to portray it as if they're giving all. It's not that they only gave part. That would have been fine it was theirs to give in the first place. It wasn't required. Nobody was dictating this. The apostles weren't saying, you must bring your stuff in here and give it to them. It wasn't like that. They voluntarily wanted to give out of the overflow of Christ's love in their heart. But Ananias wanted to keep up with Barnabas. I don't think that's too much of a stretch. That's why Luke is giving us this parallel. They're set in juxtaposition here. They're both giving... Barnabas gives, it appears whether it literally happened or this is the, the overall thinking that Ananias wants to get a little bit of that credit. He wants to be looked at as holy and generous. Well, right? you know, I got bills, so I'm going to keep some of this because, you know, my donkey needs an upgrade, so we're going to keep a little bit of this money behind. Would have been fine, except for he pretended to. Be Corruption comes in. We saw, we saw in, the, in the first context of it that their eyes were on Christ; they were walking by the Spirit. In the corruption, we see eyes on self, stuff, and status. No longer looking at what everybody else needs, not caring who gets the credit. Now it's about me. I got to keep some of the stuff, but more importantly, I got to get some of this credit. I want people to see me giving. I want people to notice me. What's my reputation going to be? As they see me sell this property and bring it, I'm the big guy now. I'm the honcho. Maybe I'll even get a position of leadership in the church if I write a big enough check. They're going to think I'm somebody. And Ananias' eyes, along with his wife Sapphira, were not on Christ. They're on self. They're on stuff. we run into this confrontation notice what happens Peter verse 3 says Ananias how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received now he confronts him directly he gets right into this notice that the Holy Spirit reveals truth and Peter speaks truth Peter had no way of knowing this other than the Holy Spirit showing him. Ananias does it in secret, thinks nobody knows about it except his wife. They're together in this, in this crime against the Holy Spirit. And so as they're coming together, everybody else is thinking, wow, look at them giving that stuff. Walking down, going to lay this at the Apostle's feet, chest puffed up shoulders back. All right. Holy. Look at me, how pious I am. There's no death on your mind. Something isn't right here. Because the Holy Spirit made Peter aware, made it clear to him that this was wrong. And Peter doesn't talk about it. He doesn't take the money either, by the way. Now, as we see this, Peter's not interested in the sacrifice. He's not saying, okay, well, we're going to take this. We're going to put this in the coffers. That's not how it goes. He goes directly to him. Look, what's wrong with you? Has the devil so filled your heart that you're going to taint this gift? Presumably the gift still got used because the owners are great. We have a tendency as people to justify based on somebody's wealth or their position accepting their gift. Accepting their, if I could say, bribe, to turn our heads and look the other way. Peter doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit shows him the truth, reveals it to him, and he speaks directly to the problem. He confronts Ananias. It seems harsh. That's love. What love does, goes right to the problem. Sapphira comes in. It's the same thing. The Spirit shows them what's going on. He confronts her with the same thing. You know, he makes it really clear when he talks to Ananias. He could have kept this money. And nobody would have thought anything of it. Lots of people aren't selling their houses and their lands. They're just giving from what they have. Nobody would have thought anything of it. It was yours. You could have done anything you wanted. If you had decided to sell it and bring part of the money in and say, hey, I'm selling this property and I'm bringing part of the money in, then God would be honored. But you didn't do that, Ananias. Instead, you tried to pretend it was something it wasn't. God's not honored. God's angry. And he drops down dead. Sapphira comes in. She doesn't know what's going on. Same kind of thing. Hey, uh, is this the price? Oh, yeah, that's the price. Dead. out, barrier again. That's a pretty heavy thing. The confrontation leads to the consequence. The consequence was already going to happen. The confrontation is the ushering in of that. When we make these choices, (laughs) stuff happens. You throw a pebble in the pond, there's a ripple. You knock over dominoes and the whole thing goes. There is always a consequence to our choices. And we see here that whether now or later, sin brings death. Whether now or later, sin brings death. In this particular instance, the death is physical and immediate. Now, we're not told whether Ananias and Sapphira are believers who go to heaven. I think you can make a pretty pretty reasonable assumption based on the fact that they are... Here as hypocrite this early phase that in all likelihood they didn't know Christ at all. They saw the power of the Holy Spirit at work and they wanted a piece of the action. Could be wrong. they are there in heaven. We're not told. Not really relevant. That's not the point. The point is that when we do hypocritical things there is a price to be paid. The wages of sin is always death. here, physical and immediate. Apart from Christ, eternal. You see the context, the corruption, the confrontation, the consequence. And then there's the conclusion. There's an effect, a result. What's, what is this conclusion to the story? Notice how it ends. After this happens... Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And all God's people said, Shaw, of course, how could you not? Two people died in a three-hour window in your church service. Something freaky going on in that church. So if you are a believer and you're here, you're in this and you see the hypocrisy immediately judged by the Holy Spirit of God, do you think you have a stronger fear of God? Nod your head if you're with me, right? If you see the lion eat the gazelle, are you a little more afraid of the lion? So God, the Holy One, is immediately judging these two. It might have been easy if God had not immediately judged these two, and maybe you kind of heard, or you got wind of what Ananias and Sapphira did, for you to become a little lax in your own commitment to holiness. Well, nobody knew, so it's no big deal. How often have our hearts told us that our secret sins aren't that big of It doesn't affect anybody else. Now, if we say that out loud, it sounds pretty convicting. But our hearts say something else. Our hearts are sick, twisted, broken, desperately wicked. Who can know that? Don't trust your heart. Your heart's going to tell you foolish things. Trust the Word of God. Integrity goes beyond your feelings. Integrity is the whole person doing the whole thing the whole time what integrity is. No gaps, no holes, no no covered up places, no dark corners that I haven't swept out, no rooms still locked against the Holy Spirit of God. I am open to you, Lord. Do what you want. And if there's a cost, there's a cost. But I won't be fake. I won't pretend to be something I'm not. I won't pretend to be better than I am. I'm sinful and broken. I have no pride left. Jesus shattered my pride on the cross. That whole person sort of integrity, all the way through, is what God is looking for in His people. And this impact that brings fear in the church also impacts all who heard about it. Our conclusion? Both the church and the world take God seriously. The church and the world take God seriously. Notice what happens in the, in the summary paragraph after that, which will also be our beginning for next time. The apostles performed many signs. right? So we got this fear. This is verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. So far, that verse sounds a whole lot like what we saw before Ananias' Sapphira. But notice what happens as we go on no one else, verse 13, dared join them. Even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now, wait a minute, Peter. This is terrible church growth strategy. You need, to, you need to soften this up a little bit. You and your fire and brimstone, hardcore preaching, you know, only Jesus. And and now, you got people dying in church because they had a little white lie. They were doing a good thing it up a little bit. Or you're going to lose people. People will stop coming. No one dared join them. Even though they were highly regarded by the people. The reputation of the church, based on what the Holy Spirit was doing through them, the compassion of God being played out, was bringing a good reputation to Christ followers. Because they were reflecting Christ. At the same time, people were scared to death because you just had two people die in service. I don't want to show up to church and be judged by God. I don't want to show up to church and have the sermon step on my toes. I don't want to show up to church and have people think that I'm a sinner and look down on me. I'm not going. You know, an interesting thing about persecution, an interesting thing about hard teaching for I'm not talking about angry teaching, you know, I'm better than you, and all that kind of stuff. That that kind of fire and brimstone stuff is garbage. That's just hypocrisy and sinful. But when we speak the truth, even when the truth is hard, it has a tendency to, if I can be so crass, thin the hurt. Fakes and phonies don't stick around. You don't find a lot of cultural Christians in North Korea. You don't find casual, comfortable, halfway, church-going, religious people claiming Christ in a Why? Because it will cost you everything. You can lose your family. You can lose your business, your home even your life. So if you believe in Christ in those circumstances, so you better be real serious about it. What happens here causes both the church and the world to take it seriously. No more games. No playing. I'm not going to hang out with Peter. I don't care how many uh, cripples he heals. I'm not doing that because that's dangerous. It's gonna cost me. But once I've received the grace of God, once I see the reality of it, and it changes. Things. No one dared join them, and yet at the same time, many kept believing and were added to their number. Who didn't join them? The posers who didn't believe, but wanted some of the taste of it. Who did join them? Those who were truly converted. Because they saw their sin and they recognized the salvation that was available in Christ. Any price. Doesn't matter. Amen. Let's jump to the principles and applications of learning short on time. I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as I can. Hopefully, as you read these stories, many of these things are already jumping out to you. But I want to I want to just enumerate six things. There are certain more applications that we can get from this. Understanding that the holiness of God demands integrity in those who represent Him. There are six things that I want to make sure that we see. First, reflecting the reality of Christ means reflecting the reality of His holiness. Reflecting the reality of Christ means reflecting the reality of His holiness. We are not a church if we don't represent Christ accurately. When we play fast and loose with the Bible, we are not a church. When we pick and choose what we want to believe from the Scriptures, we are not a church. It's the whole counsel of God for the whole life of the whole person of God. When we belong to Him and we choose to confess Christ and reflect Him, we must reflect Him. Not just gentle Jesus. Not just God is love. But God is holy. And God is love. It's the fullness of grace and truth. Anything less than that is unworthy of our Christ. Reflecting the reality of Christ means reflecting the reality of His holiness. Our holy God demands a holy church. And if we're going to represent Christ accurately, we must represent all of Christ. Second, whole person integrity must be a hallmark of God's people. Whole person integrity must be a hallmark of God's people. We cannot reflect the reality of Christ without integrity. It can't be a patchwork where some of us is given to Christ and some of us is held in reserve because, you know, I got my buddies that I hang out with. And and so I'm going to give Jesus most of me, but I don't want to give up my good times over here. Listen, until you're willing to give up all good times, don't mishear me. Until you're willing to give up literally everything, you don't understand. You don't get it yet. You don't get the reality of Christ yet until the reality of Christ becomes more important than any other thing or person in your life. The preacher just said we can't have any fun. No, man, we're the only ones who can really have fun. Because there's no consequence to having fun in the name of Christ. To borrow from the great theologians, the newsboys, wherever we go, that's where the parts at. Because there's no guilt, there's no shame in a holy party. There's no regret in There's nothing I have to look back on and say, oh man, I hope mom doesn't find out. I hope the police don't find out. We don't have to worry about those things. Purity and wholesomeness does not equal boredom. So put that lie from Satan out of your head. But it does mean I don't worship the good time. I'm not only here for the here for reality. And Christ gets all of me. Whole person integrity must be a hallmark of God's people. We can't reflect the reality of Christ without integrity. The reality of Christ actually necessitates integrity in his church. Hypocritical religion bears dire consequences. Ananias and Sapphira are given as an illustration of but understand, just because God hasn't struck you dead, doesn't mean there are consequences. God does not abide a hypocrite. But we're all hypocrites, you say, yes, that's true. But the hypocrite that embraces that hypocrisy, if you're cool with it, in other words, you don't belong to it. It's not your will hypocrite that hates the hypocrisy in themselves and says, I won't do this, and then I do it. I don't want this. I confess. I repent. I'm turning from this, and I'm not hiding it from anybody. Yes, I'm a wretched person. Done pretending. That goes with hypocrisy. God won't won't tolerate. He won't abide this hypocrisy in us holiness God desires is a whole life of surrender to Him. He's not interested in who you pretend to be or who others think you are. He wants the whole you. All of you all the time. All in for Jesus. You will fail. You will struggle. Get up. Dust yourself off. Keep walking. Confess your sin and move forward. Whole person integrity. Not perfection, but integrity. A hallmark of God's people. Third, we might fool people, but we never fool God. This should be obvious. Some of you already filled it in in your programs. We might fool people. We might even fool ourselves, but we never fool God. He sees through us. God sees beyond the show. There are no secret sins. God sees the heart and demands integrity of his people. We've been looking at Acts. Turn to the back of the book to look at Hebrews. Just a couple of quick verses there in Hebrews chapter four. If you get to James, he went too far. Hebrews chapter four. We're going to look at verses twelve and thirteen, focusing on thirteen, but I can't not read twelve. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. This is the Word of God. It cuts deep. It cuts through the fertilizer that you might be using for your fake religion." It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Take this out now. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That thing you thought you got away with, you didn't. God knows. You will give an account for it. Turn to the middle of your Bible to Psalm 139. This is the psalm I wanted to have Brad read this morning, but elected like to go a different direction with that. Psalm 139 is a, a very popular uh, psalm in, in talking about sanctity of life. When, when we talk about the reality of the unborn, created persons bearing the image of God, sacred to God. When we talk about abortion being a heinous, egregious sin, it is, people will often turn to this. But if you read this psalm, there's more to it there. That wasn't what the psalmist had in mind when they were writing is true that God does know us before we are born. There's no question about that. And because the the thought of abortion has come up I need to hit pause for just a moment and speak to those of you in this room who have been touched by that because it's impossible in a room this size with the number of people we have here that we don't have people who are don't have us runs into our sin, not away from it. The things that we have done that most shame us and scar us are His and He bears those scars in His own flesh. So please, please, if you hear me mention that and the skin starts to, to, to get tight and the hair stands up on the back of your neck and, and you feel that stress and anxiety, please, please, understand that God loves you so much that He sent Jesus to heal you and to take that from you. There is no sin, no sin that you keep from His cross. You are loved deeply and truly. But in Psalm 139, that's not primarily what what the psalmist is writing about. As we there is a sense of dread and comfort simultaneously. Two things true at the same time. There's a picture here of the fear of God. Because of what we just read in Hebrews, that everything will be laid bare before him to whom we give an account. Notice, with that in mind, notice what the psalmist writes. Verse 1: You have searched me, Lord and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You you perceive my thoughts from afar. Discern my going out and my lying down. Lord, you're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You, You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Night will shine like the day, for darkness is as is as light to you. As the psalmist writes this, I'm reminded of a child who is bothered by the fact that they can't seem to get away from mom and dad. A teenager complaining about privacy. Maybe a teenager doing the wrong thing, realizing almost realizes here that you are always busted. God knows you can't get away. I can't flee. There's no place I can go to get away from God. He knows my thoughts. The word that I'm trying not to say, he already knows my heart. He knows the thoughts, the motives justify myself before God? How can I act like I've somehow got this together? He knows me. And yet that same child, that same teenager, at other times, relies on, clings to the reality get away from them when I'm trying to do bad and I can't get away from them when I need help. I'm comforted by the very same thing that brings dread. The psalmist writes I, I can't get away. But the good news is I can't get away. You will always be here to redirect, to guide me back to the right path. He finishes the psalm with this devotional prayer Search me and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Lord King James, see if there's any wicked way in me. God, help me down. Go all through. as as the children of Israel are getting ready to cross into the promised land, to cross over Jordan. Some of the tribes want to stay and get the land on the the side of the Jordan that they're on. They don't want to cross over. And and Moses and the Lord make a concession to them and give them those, those properties there. But God commands them to come across, to still follow God and to still now come and fight with their brothers against the pagan nations to cast them out of the promised land. And God says to them in verse 23, if you don't do this, you will be sinning against God. And in a verse that my mother drilled in, I had over and over again as a child. Be sure will sin to a final You might the secret. It's not. God knows. He's not done. Peter writes in his first letter verse 17 of chapter 4, judgment begins with the house of God. Which brings us to our fourth point. God purifies His people. God purifies His people. God cleans up His church Here in this chapter, we see it happening immediately. God is setting a tone. The longer things go without the purging, the more the purging hurts, the deeper it becomes. In the Great Reformation, after centuries of apostate, heretical teaching, elevating the will of man ahead of the will of God, saying the teachings of church authorities are more important than the teachings of God's Word, God brought about this Reformation, and with that Reformation didn't just come good things, came much death, much bloodshed, and upheaval, but in the midst of this almost Old Testament-like destruction, God purifying His people. As we read in Hebrews 4.13, God sees all. Nothing is hidden. Nothing in all creation is hidden from Him. Everything is laid bare before Him, and He will keep us accountable. We will stand before Him one day. Understand that the all-seeing God will ensure that His people reflect the reality of Christ with integrity. God sees everything and He ensures that His people reflect the reality of Christ with integrity. A couple of extreme examples. I'm not going to have you turn there right now. You can jot them down if you want to check them out for your homework. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, in Leviticus chapter 10. God is establishing the priesthood. He's giving them the commands of how to do the sacrifices. They come in and they do it wrong. God brings fire from the altar and smites them dead. You might look at that and say, wow, that was really hard. God's doing the same thing there that He's doing here. If we get off on the wrong foot, if I start off on my, my plane ride to Tokyo, and I'm off by one degree, I will never even hit Japan. Not even close. God is writing the path early. And when Aaron's sons decide that they're going to do it their way instead of God's way, God handles them differently than He handles others who have errors. Because they're called to lead. Those who teach are held to a higher standard. Those who are responsible for others are held to a higher standard. Understand this, God held all of Israel to a higher standard than the pagan nations. Why? Because Israel was there to be the light to the nations, so that the Gentile world that didn't know God could come to know God through Israel. So God's judgment on his own people was harsher than his judgment on the pagan nations. Even though the pagan nations were, in many ways, wickeder. Wickeder? I didn't say wickeder. More wicked. Less righteous. The deeds of the pagans were horrific. Child sacrifice was prominent. And God swallowed them up every time they did it. But when God's people started to do the same thing, God came against them. Another story is in Joshua chapter 7. It's the only loss in the book of Joshua. Moses has, has died. Joshua has led the Israelites into the promised land. And they have to pick out the pagan nations. And they have victory after victory after victory over better-trained, bigger armies. You have a bunch of former slaves who raised their kids in the desert, died off. The kids are here. Now they're grown up. They're going in to fight these pagan armies. That's what these pagan armies do. They fight each other. It's constant warfare. So trained warriors with established uh, walled cities, and the Israelites come in and wipe them all out. Except for one town of Ai. And Israel goes up and they get their butts. I don't know if I can say that in a sermon, but they just They get smattered. It just, it just wiped out. Why? Why these horrible losses? Joshua cries out before the Lord and God says, because there's sin in the camp. You know what it was? One guy who decided he was going to keep some of the, some of the haul, some of what was left. kept it secretly. Nobody knew about it. Buried it under his tent So he had his own stuff. His eyes were on self. Stuff. I'm going to be a big man eventually. I've got, I've got my nest egg here. While everybody else does their thing, I'm going to be rich. But God singles him out. Long story short, God has the people stone him, and that and, and, and that wipes out the sin but God cannot abide at the beginning of this time this unholiness there are multiple stories like that God gives mercy but he purifies his people understand that wherever there are people there is sin but the Lord sanctifies the Lord makes holy he makes us what he has already declared us. He has declared us righteous and holy in Christ. In his sanctifying work through the Holy Spirit in us, he makes us in practice what we already are in position. When he looks on us, he sees the merits of Christ on our behalf for all those who belong to Christ. But we know that we don't walk like Christ without sin. So God continues to grow us, to discipline us, to purify us, to refine us. But that refining requires pain. No discipline is pleasant at the time. But it's necessary. It's useful. God does that in His people, in His church. He does that in your life. God purifies His people. Fifth. Those who confess Christ must be authentically His. Those who confess Christ must be authentically His. When Jesus encounters the woman at the well in John 4, she's a Samaritan woman, she's like, hey. And once she realizes that He is Messiah, she's like, okay, now, so uh, your people say we're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem. My people say we're supposed to worship God on this mountain. Which is it? And Jesus said, listen, there's going to be a time when that's not going to be the issue. True worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and He desires worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Those who confess Christ must be authentically His, with integrity all the way through. But we see in Ananias and Sapphira, folks who don't belong to Christ all the way. They might have gone to church, they might have been a part of the assembly. might have worn the jersey but they weren't on the team. They didn't authentically belong to him. In truth we want to please another master. There are consequences. In fact, number six, choices always have consequences. Choices always have consequences. Paul wrote in Galatians 7, reiterating what has been said several times throughout the scriptures. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps, what he sows. In other words, choices always have consequences. The consequence of sin is inevitably death. That's how it works. Sin brings death, always. The choice to receive Jesus Christ as Lord us from the penalty of that sin, because He already took it. He bought the gift. I received the gift from Him. It was great. The I get freedom. That's a good consequence. I get life. Good consequence. When I choose to take my eyes off of Christ and let the lesser things of this world pull me down, there are consequences there as well. Understand that God knows our hearts. No one gets a pass. Nobody. Nobody gets into heaven because you like them a lot. Nobody gets to sin without consequences, even if, don't miss this now, even if you come to real life. Not even, say that, you know, I I can do anything I want. I, you know, I can't lose my salvation. Okay, yeah. But if you belong to Christ, you don't want the things of this world. You don't want to sin. If you still want to sin, then you've missed the entire point of all of this. The Holy Spirit is in you if you're in Christ. Sin doesn't fit anymore. It's like old clothes. If I try to put on clothes from when I was 18, can going to happen. Understand the reality There is a consequence always. Christ has paid for our sin at the cross, but choices still have consequences. This passage in Acts 5 is not about salvation. That's not the focus of it. Whether Ananias and Sapphira were saved isn't the point. The point is hypocrisy. And we need to recognize in our own lives that even if we are saved and going to heaven... If I run my car into a tree, I don't get a pass. If I, as a believer, make stupid decisions, then the consequences of those stupid decisions are still there. Don't claim Christ as a get-out-of-jail-free car. That's not how it works. We'll wrap this up. The holiness of God demands integrity in those who represent Him. Holiness of God demands integrity in those who represent him. If you are in Christ, you represent him in the world. And integrity must be part of who you are. Let's close with that memory verse. The end of Psalm 139. If you want Change that comes with receiving the reality of Christ. We all in. Take this your prayer. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way of the last. Time. Father, thank you. in your holiness you desire holiness you demand it you've told us to be holy because you are holy you've set us apart for yourself Lord whatever it takes whatever fire is needed to refine us break us humble us but make us more like Take away any part that we've been hiding. Strip it down and make us fully and completely yours. Father, let the things that we say and do and think, all be for Jesus. It's in his name.